From Hong Kong, Chicago and the city of Stoke-on-Trent, this is the Classic Lenses Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 71. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by Johnny Sisson and Perry G. Hello, Johnny. Hello. And hello, Perry. Hey, guys. Perry, you've been busy this week, haven't you? What have you been up to this week? I have. I have. Uh... Well, it finally stopped raining in Hong Kong, so I have been doing a bunch of shooting. But yesterday, uh, as some of you may have read, Hong Kong saw possibly its largest protest ever, um, with turnout recorded at over a million people. And I was there yesterday in the sweltering heat for hours, just shooting it. So what was, um, so what yeah. was the protest about? Yeah, so... I mean, obviously, this is not a politics podcast, but it was uh, over a proposed law that would allow Hong Kong to extradite people to mainland China. Um, and obviously, a lot of people are concerned about this uh, because Hong Kong, you know, we have our own legal system based on British common law. And the idea of allowing China to basically ask Hong Kong to send anyone over uh, to be prosecuted for crimes over there is just is really scary to a lot of people. So, you know, Hong Kong is a city of seven and a half million people. And for a million people to turn out in the streets is quite something. I mean, you know, I, I've shot large protests in Hong Kong before and I've seen them before, but th- this felt like, this felt unlike any other because the, the organizers asked everybody to wear white. And, you know, Hong Kong is a pretty hot, sweaty place, so a lot of people don't really wear white because your your sweat shows really <laughs> clearly. And and you could just see the entire city was blanketed in white. You know, um, I saw people at the bottom of my building in the lobby who were clearly going out to protest. Uh, subway stops were shut down because they were completely full, so people were finding ways to like take the ferry to go down to the main route. And normally, the way that these protests work is everyone gathers in kind of the middle of uh, the, the, the downtown area and then they walk for about four kilometers to the uh, legislative council building and the crowd was so big that the police told people to start the protest like an hour early and four, five, six hours later there were still people showing up at the starting point and so for about six kilometers Um, every lane of road in downtown Hong Kong was just packed full of people uh, sort of peacefully marching down towards the legislative buildings and it was yeah I mean it was insane I have never seen a crowd like that wow Wow, that's been some pretty amazing pictures you pulled out of that uh, yeah yeah I'm I'm just looking at one of them at the moment and it was uh, taken with your your ex-pam um it seems like a, a, a good camera for the day, really, to, to fit those people in. Yeah, what a perfect, perfect choice for for something like that. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of agonized over that before going down there. Um, I was talking to my buddy the night before, and I was like, yo, dude, what, what camera should I bring? I'm thinking either I'm going to bring two normal cameras, which I by which I meant 35 millimeter like rangefinders, or I'll bring one normal camera uh, and my X-Pan. And I, and I think by normal, he thought I meant digital cameras. So he was like, oh, just bring digital. It's more convenient. But I was like, no, 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 the, that's, that's, that's not what I mean by normal <laughs> film. So I ended up going down. I was like, look, I need cameras where I can shoot fast. And I need cameras where... So so I, I had to get something with aperture priority. Yeah. And I was like, I need something that I know I'm going to trust. 
Um, so I brought my Konica Hexar RF with a with a 35 2.8 Biogon um, and my X-Pen. Uh, outside of Zeiss ZM 85mm F4 Teletessar in my bag, but I never used that. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's, it's uh, you know, I, I never switch to the long lens because when you're in the protest and you're in a crowd of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, <laughs> you're going to get close, right? You don't need to pick someone out in the crowd yeah. far away from you because they're like literally in your face. Yeah. There's a, I was going to say, there's, there's a shot where you've, you're very, very close uh, to people where people have got the arms crossed above the heads. Yes. And, uh, and I think it's a really, really powerful image. And it, well, another what, what's interesting now, I've been staring at it for a little bit because I didn't really notice it at first. And that's uh -huh. really the, 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 the there's, a, there's a woman in the foreground that's, that has a very interesting expression on her face. And I think that's where you certainly my eye is drawn to, but she's not actually the person that's in focus. There's a there's a chap up the top right that's uh, that's in focus there. But it it's 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 interesting, in particular for me though, because I, I think this photograph is about her. Yet she's not in focus. Yet it's still a good shot. Mm. Yeah. So that shot, I worked that scene a little bit. So I have. A couple of frames shot from that position where everyone is holding their hands up in the uh, sort of resist X shape. And I, I was looking at them with my girlfriend and discussing which ones we liked best. And we both agreed on that one because I do have one shot where she's in focus. Um, and she has the same kind of worried expression on her face. But the picture is not about her. The picture is more about the crowd and that, you know, that sea of X's. And so, you know, that may have been one of the shots where a digital camera with a tilty, flippy screen would have helped me frame a little bit more clearly. But basically what I did to get that shot was I zone focused my lens at, at pretty much hyperfocal. Um, and then they were so close to me that, like, the reason they're out of focus is just because my rangefinder can't focus that closely. Um, so I, I held the camera kind of above my head and trusted my, trusted my instincts when it came to framing. And it's it's not just her; it's the other out of focus X that's like really yeah. prominent in the yeah. foreground yeah. that I think completes the composition. That right? makes to me that totally makes the composition actually is the the crossed X. I mean that that's really and the out of focus it totally work. You can get away with that on on film because it looks mushy and it looks nice. You know what I mean? It it it, yeah. I mean, it just it just really works. It's a very powerful symbol, um, and it, visually it's very powerful. So to me that. That totally works. I, I've had that same experience in like tight crowds doing protest photography um, is that it's, you know, it, it, you can you can focus on on kind of one face, but it's always more about the entire kind of crowd and you, you never get kind of everybody and everything in focus, really. So it, it, it to me, it totally works at, you know, as a, like an emotional thing, but also giving the entire scale of a moment you know, in one image. Yeah, and that compositionally, the thing that I like about that shot and the fact that she's out of focus is the other photo where she is in focus, mm. your, your eye pretty much just locks on her yeah, and doesn't really move around. Whereas here, you've got the blurred X in the foreground, her eye, which is the first thing that you look at. And then yeah. there's also like a dude in the background who's perfectly in focus. Right. And he just happens to be unobscured at all. And yeah, so I think and, it, just, it makes your eye jump around the scene and, and sort of feel the the size of the protest. Yeah, that, that's what I was looking that's at. What I to, 
I, I, to me, that totally works because I'm looking around and there's so many faces that I go to beyond just that face. I mean, even the face on the extreme right-hand side of the frame where it's the profile is also to me, you know, he's like looking up, he's facing towards that crossed hand. So you've got that pulling your eye towards that part of the image, but then you've got the boy on the shoulders with the glasses on and you've got a guy next to him in the upper right corner of the front. I mean, there's so many faces that you can pull out of this image. And I, that's what I find really interesting about it. Yeah, the, the guy in the far right um, who's looking back is my girlfriend's favorite part of that image. Mm. Um, and when I posted these pictures in the photography with Classic Lenses group, uh, Lawrence Dunn posted a really interesting comment where he was talking about how he hasn't done a lot of protest photography before. And when he shot the Extinction Rebellion protests in London, he got like a buzz that he doesn't get from normal yeah. photography. And I think <laughs> that sense of shooting something that like you're shooting to document it, um, right. it's a sense of being part of something bigger than yourself, yep. that it's the emotion that you're trying to convey, right? And so, you know, I don't care if it's technically perfect. And I think the shots, exactly as you're saying, the shot where she's not in focus uh, works better for me because then you're seeing the emotion of the moment and rather, and not just like this woman in the foreground looking worried. Yeah, 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 for sure. It's, it's interesting, the, the guy that is in focus in the top right is sort of one of the least consequential people actually in, in the photograph. So you almost, you, you see that he's in focus and then you just completely then ignoring and look at the, just like, as you said, the, the whole atmosphere and feeling in the shot and you can, you've captured the movement there you know, the, and you know, the shutter speed is, I don't know, what was that, about 60th of a second maybe, no more than that, I'm guessing? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, so uh, which which again uh, takes away from any potential sharpness that that could have been there. With and yeah, yeah, I think I think just that that as uh, Johnny was saying that that mushiness of 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 the of, of the film there, it just it just gives you that that feeling. It, it helps convey that sense of chaos um, in a crowd that big as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how did how did with the people that were there? I mean, how how did they react to you taking photographs, especially these photographs that you were very very close to? Is it were they effectively ignoring you, um, or or did they feel your presence? Oh, they definitely felt my presence. Um, I mean, I do a lot of candid street shooting in Hong Kong, and you know, I I'm not I don't try to be stealthy. You know, when people see me, I tend to like wave at them or give them a thumbs up or. You know, mm -hmm. if, if if I'm feeling confident in my Chinese that they have a conversation with them. But here it's a massive protest. So the vast majority of people are there to make their voices heard and be seen. So they don't really mind being photographed. And if I see someone who's like, they look like they don't want to be in my shot. Typically what they'll do is like look away or look down at their phone. And to, that's not really interesting to me anyway. So if they kind of, you know, have body language that indicates they want to be in the crowd but not highlighted, then I'll, I'll tend to sort of not be drawn to them anyway. So a lot of people, when I was shooting uh, the signs that they were holding up or some of the more vocal protesters, they would, they would like point their signs at me and make eye contact and like be sure that I, I saw what they were doing. Yeah, they didn't mm -hmm. mind at all. And the, 
your, your choices of which which camera you use for which type of shots. I mean, your X pan you used for the you were, you were further back from the from the people, and uh, when you're using your biogon there, you were you were much closer. Again, was that a, a deliberate point, or did you think about using your X pan when you were relatively close? Um, yeah, that's a that's a really good point because I did I do have a couple of shots that I posted later from the X pan where I'm quite close, um, but. You know, what I wanted to use the X-Pan for was sort of sweeping shots that showed the scale of the protest. But I wasn't able to get a lot of those when I was in the midst of the crowd because, like, I was sort of eye-level with everybody else. So it's only later on when I um, got to the end of the protest and then walked into a nearby shopping mall that I got a couple of shots from, like, a higher vantage point uh, that showed the, the scale of the protest stretching into the distance. So the X-Pan really worked for those shots because I didn't really want a bunch of extra stuff on the top and bottom of the frame. Mm. Um, and it, it even worked for vertical panos. Uh, whereas with the Biogon, two things. Um, yeah, getting close to people with 35 mil, I'm so used to it that I kind of know exactly how much of the frame uh, is is going to be filled. And like when you're all moving, I can't sort of stand there and frame carefully as I normally would. And sometimes I'm, I'm actually literally holding the camera above my head and tilting it down at the crowd. So because 35 millimeter is like the focal length I shoot with 90% of the time, I can feel what, what's going to be in my frame, even when I'm not looking through the yeah. viewfinder. Um, and so that's why I went with that. Uh, yeah, so Perry, I was just, I mean, thinking about that image, I was just looking back at some uh, photos that I did. Um, wow. Just like I was going to look at the date of these real quick, but um, it was January of... It must have been 28, 2017, I'm guessing. It's right when uh, Trump announced um, his travel ban uh, against Muslim nations, I guess you would have to say. That's the fair description of what it was about. Um, but it was the most unusual protest I've ever been at in that it was essentially... Um, completely spontaneous. Uh, like I, I was on the train, you know, headed home from from work, and I'm I'm seeing the train fill up with all these people who are headed out to O'Hare Airport, um, which is on the train line that I ride every day. So I'm looking at all the signs, and then I'm I'm looking at the news on my phone, and they're saying, you know, there's protests spontaneously happening all over the nation at airports, et cetera. And I, I understood right away what was going on. And what I had in my, my bag that day was my Olympus Pen F um, mm -hmm. with, oh God, I'm not even sure I remember. Oh, I did, I put it in the notes here. It, it has a, I've got an OM-514 and I had a Pen F-40, uh, 40, the 40 millimeter with me also. Um, so, I mean, I just basically had what I had on me <laughs> uh, in, in terms of what to shoot. Um, and I had uh, double X film in the camera that I, you know, was shooting at 800. So I just kind of traveled out and, and decided I was going to, you know, shoot what was going on. Um, and yeah, it was just this really spontaneous and really tightly packed crowd of people outside the international terminal. And I started kind of shooting and, um, a lot of a lot of it is uh, out of focus people. It, it's the same sort of thing you're just talking about, and it really struck me when I saw the even the negatives, even before I had them scanned. How you know this one photo of this guy 
who's very much out of focus, right in the kind of the front of the frame. And then behind him is a sign that says immigrants make America great. And then behind that is an American flag. And to me, the, the, the kind of like this almost completely obscured face was like, you know, he could be anyone in the entire nation or the na nation, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's like people can become symbols beyond just they themselves in, a, in situations like that. Um, and even in some of the other photos, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that are sort of out of focus, but then you get, you know, you get other people that are in focus and you get such a read off different faces in a crowd. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I can really relate to your experience, you know, shooting the protest and that feeling of, of being in the crowd and, and, in the, and seeing all that in everyone's faces and in their expressions. I think it's a yeah, really powerful yeah. thing to be a part of that. That's so interesting that you say that because, um, you know, we don't see a lot of like black and white film documentary style shots in the photography, the classic lenses group. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about looking at your negatives, uh, th that's exactly what I did. Like I rushed home and developed them because it, it was sort of uh, an important moment that I felt like I needed to get the negatives done really quick. Yeah. And the story that you're trying to tell with the photos, like it's not a portrait, right? Yeah. So a perfectly technically executed close-up of a person's face in the middle of a protest doesn't capture the emotion and sort of resonance of yeah, yeah. what's going on around you. And so the out-of-focus shot almost works better because like, it, it's not about a single individual, but about the broader context that you're trying to show. Right. Yeah, it did. Totally, totally true. Um, and, and I've, I don't know, I feel like I've experienced it before in crowds. I've actually been shooting protests. I mean, God, I mean, on and off for a very long time. And I, I think the first things that I, uh, some of the first things I shot were, well, way back the first Gulf War. So 1990, um, mm. there were massive protests all over the country that got very little um, press attention because you know it, it, we 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 were seemingly very pro <laughs> pro Gulf War it seemed um, in the run up to that and but there were really big large vocal protests and they were borderline very very almost violent um, here in Chicago where they had you know lines of police on horses pushing the crowds back and it I mean it got really it got really touchy um, so. You know, I've, it's like you're in these some of these situations where there's a there is a certainly a potential for danger, um, if not, uh, you know, between uh, police and crowds, but just even the fact that it's such a large large crowd. I mean, you get that many people together, and you know, anything can sort of happen. So it's it's interesting to shoot in those situations because I feel like you have to be aware of what's going on around you in terms of trying to get photos of the moment, but also your own personal safety and, you know, um, and just trying to keep a read on everything. And I, and the other thing too, is I've been in a lot of protests where I really don't agree with what's being presented, or maybe I strongly agree with, with the, the, the basis of the protest, but I don't, but in order to be able to take some photos, you can't be seen as part of the protest, if that makes sense. Because um, I've spent a lot of time at these protests very close to the police, trying to get things from their perspective. And it's important to almost be um, not part of the protest when you're doing that. So I think protest photography just generally is an unusual thing to shoot that that um, is different than most 
photographic experiences we probably have day in and day out. I, I think what you just said, uh, sorry, Simon, go ahead. No, 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 you, you, you go ahead. I might, okay. I might take it slightly somewhere different, you see. Yeah, so, so Johnny, I think what you just said is interesting because that sounds really different from yeah. uh, shooting <laughs> protests in Hong Kong, which I've done quite a bit because they're yeah. very peaceful yeah. um, with only isolated pockets of, you know, like in a crowd of a million, you're going to get a couple of people who want to stir things up. Right, right. Um, so I find that, you know, if it's a protest where I am in support of the underlying message, Mm -hmm. I, I'm actually more comfortable sort of becoming part of the crowd yeah. and almost part of the protest so that like when you turn around and shoot people, they're almost like they get the sense that you're shooting them out of a sense of solidarity. Right. Uh, right. But even the police, they don't, you know, like our police don't you know, shoot people. Um, so we can even walk up to cops and <laughs> yeah. uh, shoot them close up. I've done that in previous protests. I couldn't get close enough to any police in this one because they were kind of like cordoning off the edges and the crowd was so big. But I've like walked right up to police in Hong Kong and like shot them with my camera, obviously, yeah. uh, like from a meter away, and they don't care. I mean, just just going back to what John Johnny was saying about um, trying to um, be apart from uh, the, taking sides when when taking these these photographs. I mean, that's it's I think reportage is the uh, the name for that that kind of shooting, and it's yeah. it's quite an interesting subject in itself. I mean, I've, I've seen. Uh, locally, there's a, a Facebook group um, where somebody, it was a couple about probably about nearly two years ago now, and somebody uh, posted a photograph of um, a hunt, um, so fox hunting, in other words, and um, and that's a subject in the UK that um, brings out uh, lots of strong opinions. You know, uh, animal welfare issues versus uh, tradition versus employment and all all sorts of things. I'm not going to get into the, the the politics of that one, but it's it was it was interesting when somebody posted this picture, uh, which I looked at as being you know it was a very straightforward reportage shot. I didn't think it was glamorising uh, what was going on, and I think actually there were some protesters actually in the photograph as well. Um, but the, the reactions that uh, were being generated uh, by this photograph were, were very, very real and very, very strong uh, to, the, to the point where some people were saying that you should, yeah, this person should never have taken that photograph in the first place. And how, how, could, how could Facebook allow this kind of photograph even to be uh, shown wow. and, stuff like wow. that and stuff like that? You know, and uh, it's like, you know, the reactions are like, you know, who's going to think of the children kind of, kind yeah. of reactions, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But uh, ultimately, it's it's a it's taking a photograph of something that is actually going on. And as a photographer, uh, if you want to capture uh, what's happening there, then if you're capturing that from a neutral stance, then you well, you could argue even if you're capturing it from a from a, a biased stance. You know, if if something is actually going on and it, it's it's and you're not manipulating the scene to make it look like it's something it isn't. Then really, I don't. I don't see why people get so annoyed by some of these photographs. Well, I mean, it just speaks to the power of photography, right? Yeah. Um, and the stories that you can tell, because you know, I've seen photos of like a confrontation between protesters and police, like the same scene, and from one angle, it's a cop spraying pepper spray at seemingly innocent young people, and then from the other angle, you see like an enraged face of a protester charging at a policeman. And like, depending on which side of that picture you show, it tells a totally different story and it's going yeah. to trigger completely different uh, emotions as well. 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I'm going to move the, the subject on a little bit now um, because we've just been talking about, you know, I think what we can undoubtedly describe as worthy photography and worthy photographs uh, because they're showing real events, real emotions and uh, and capturing history um, and and in an, in an artistic way at the same time. So, um, and, that, and that's and that's great. But there's let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum and look at the photographs that many of us take um, for for whatever reason. And I'm I'm going to bring up the the subject of um, photography. Let's call it let's call it flower photography. And flower <laughs> photography is something that it gets. A lot of stick. Um, I mean, we've seen it many times in the in the Facebook group, uh, photography with classic lenses, and and you see it el elsewhere in lots of lots of other forums. And it, it's what I think the reason why I want to bring the subject up is. I mean, I used to take a lot of flower photos. It used to be pretty much probably about seventy percent of everything I did was a flower photo, and I've moved on to other things. And that's not to say that I think I'm a better photographer now that because I don't take as many flower pictures. But I found myself in a situation recently where I went on a visit to um, a, a, a beautiful garden. You, you pay to go in there, and it's it's got lots of uh, rhododendrons, and, and and you know it's a it's a it's a it's a beautiful garden. And I thought I'll take in a camera with me. I didn't go specifically out as a as a photography trip. Like I carried a um, I had my Sony with me and. And I and I decided I was going to take my, and this is a, a lens that you know, I've had debates with uh, with Eric Sluice about uh, about what it's called, and nobody really knows what the what the lens is called. But uh, let's let's call it a Cyclop, hundred millimeter f two, uh, which is off a um, night vision uh, scope, um, and it's not the same lens as the uh, the lens that's more that's better known as a Cyclop, which is the eighty five one point five, which is uh, related to the Helios 40 and 40-2. Uh, so I had this this 100 mil lens with me, and I also knew that the minimum focus distance was quite poor. So I, I took a, a couple of helicoids with me, and and so on. And and I was walking around, and I seen some nice flowers and stuff like that. And I was thinking to myself, do I want to take a flower picture? Do I is is that what I am now? Am I have I have I not moved on from <laughs> taking flowers? And and I had this internal debate. With myself thinking you know should should i even take these flowers now i mean what are people going to think of me for uh, posting flowers um and and so on and it, and it just seems a, a utterly ridiculous situation that i find myself in yeah i i mean it, the the internal dilemma that you describe i think it, it makes sense to me but you know flower photography is fine right because it's the pictures are beautiful sometimes that, that's what most people go for in their photos. And it's a great way to, you know, check out the character of a lens, uh, learn about lighting and like practice your technique and stuff. I mean, my, my brain filters out flower photos now just because there's so many of them. But I know people who are very competent photographers with, uh, with some really sweet lenses, but their, their sort of go-to uh, style of photography is flower photography. And they'll like fly to different parts of the world to Japan when it's Sakura season um, to other parts of the world where there's like lotus blossoms blooming and, and specifically to shoot those kinds of flowers. But I think it's fine. You know, I mean, like everyone, it, this actually reminds me a lot of when I first 
started shooting street photography in Hong Kong. Because I think I mentioned when I was first on the podcast, uh, when I used to live in Canada, I used to shoot like birds and stuff and like sharp, you know, pretty pictures. And in Hong Kong, one of the things that I think changed after I started looking at a lot of street photographers was I stopped, I stopped looking for beauty in my images. Like that was no longer the central focus. And then I think as soon as that happened, I got a, I, I got that similar feeling to what you described, which is those pictures that are just purely beautiful, whether it's like, you know, a model in perfect makeup and wonderful lighting uh, or a flower or like, you know, your typical landscape shot with foreground lake mountain sky and like amazing colors uh i just started tuning those photos out but i think you know they're perfectly worthy like if you want to shoot those that's fine if you want to shoot dick pics that's totally fine too you know i've never seen anyone with like a specialty in beautifully lit technically perfect dick pics so well you <laughs> hey, haven't seen you haven't seen my dick pics i guess heavy perry <laughs> No, I am not. And please don't. Hold on one second. I'll cue those up for you. Simon's already seen them, so you know. I'm, I've I've been scarred for many years from 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 that. So uh, please don't don't do it to Perry too, please. Um, I just want to go go back to that ex that experience, and um, so there, there I was uh, in this in this beautiful scenario scene, and uh, the the light was good and. And I and I came across some poppies, some orange orange poppies in a um, in in a, in, a, in a spot where the light was um, being filtered through through the leaves. So it was actually highlighting the uh, the petals uh, on the plants. And I was thinking, that's it. I've I've got to take this. It's just it's just too nice not not to be taken. And I'd brought that lens with me because I knew that it's you know. At the end of the day, it all it does is shoot at f two. So, you any kind of shot that you're going to take with it is going to be defined as a bokeh shot. And again, that's that's something I know that John Johnny's uh, sort of now getting um, <laughs> riled up. Now I've, I've mentioned the b word. Um, but they, Nobody but, mentioned the b word. Yeah, I'll I'll I'll, I'll hand over to you shortly. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and the, and the thing is that I I had a couple of lenses with me. And I wanted to use that lens because I know that it's got some, it's got some really wacky effects. It, 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 it seems to like have different points of. The, I think the plane of focus is is not entirely flat uh, with that lens, so it, it can do some really in, interesting things. And, it, and it's not a particularly sharp lens, but it's sharp enough to you know to get whatever it is that you want in in focus in in, in detail. Um, but I, I I took the shot. And it worked exactly as I wanted it to. It, the The background wasn't wasn't brilliant uh, in reality, but by the time I put it through that lens, it looked good. And I thought to myself, okay, I've I've done that now, and I'll give a go with my fifty eight mil Asahi two point four, my Helio uh, lens, and I tried to compose it in almost the same way. And and I didn't even bother to, uh, clicking the button on it because the the outer focus area on it was really distracting, you know, bokeh worms and all all sorts of things. And the I think really I guess really the point I'm making is that uh, one, there's nothing wrong with taking flower pictures if you really want to, and you can make some beautiful shots, especially if you understand your lenses. But I think the reason why I knew that that shot was going to work with the 100 mil lens was because I just knew what 100 millimeter f2 lens would do, and then the reason why I know what 100 millimeter f2 lens would do in those situations is because I've taken lots of flower shots, 
and it's it's those flower shots I was doing three years ago or so or two years or a year ago whenever whenever it was was how I actually learnt so much about the characteristics of different lenses and the way that the the bokeh behaves the way a sonar is different from a planar and and so on so I think it's a it's a it's a great way of and you've already touched upon this about Perry yeah I think it's a, a great way to learn your lenses by doing those those close-up shots yeah, and before Johnny starts crapping on bokeh, I think, you know, um, people get caught up a lot in, in defining genres, but different types of photography train different skills, right? So, like, a lot of photography that I do in Hong Kong is sort of urban scenes where I find a composition that I like. I kind of observe how the people move around in that space, and then I just wait for the light, and I wait for, like, the people to move into the spaces to complete that composition. But, you know... the what I learned when I was like much, much, much younger shooting landscapes in Canada, that helped a lot in terms of understanding like how the light is going to change at certain times in the day, understanding what different types of lighting are going to look like and how I should, you know, how I can compose and expose for different uh, sort of overall scenes. But, but those kinds of, show, of photos, I've had people say to me, you know, that's not real street photography because it's like an urban landscape with people um, in it. And it's like, yeah, okay, you know, it's not like Bruce Gilden walking up to people and flashing them in the face, but I don't, I don't care, right? Yeah. Um, in terms of how you're going to define the photo, they all contribute to your growth as a photographer. And, you know, you can spend your entire life shooting one thing, but, but the skills from one type, it's always going to transfer to making you a better photographer. Like the last thing I'll say on this is when I, when I first started shooting urban scenes, I didn't really pay that much attention to the people. And now I won't really shoot an urban scene at all if there isn't a person in the scene because to me they complete the composition. So even if it's like just some person walking uh, past in the exact location that I want them to be in, um, to me that's just a much more complete photograph. But all the other stuff I learned helped contribute to it. Oh, yeah. My God, that's so true. Um yeah, you know, I you, you guys just assume I'm going to dish off on Boca here, right? <laughs> and and I don't know why you would think that because it's very unfair. I'm being treated very unfairly, more unfairly than anyone's ever been treated on the podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know what? I think if people want to shoot flowers, I, I God bless them. I mean, if that's your thing, man, do you be you and you do your thing, and there is nothing wrong with that. And I. I think um, Simon would. I almost feel like what what you're talking about is like a self censorship, sort of, yeah. um, right? Because of yeah. all right, I'm gonna take this picture and then I'm what I'm gonna share it and then people are gonna be like, oh, it's a book picture of a flower. Um, so, but I mean, I self censor all the time. There's stuff I don't shoot because either I've seen so many other pictures of something like that. I'm like, I'm not going to shoot that because I'm going to waste a frame on this thing that's been shot to death. And I just don't even want to add another one of these pictures to the universe of pictures that exist already, you know? So, I mean, I self censor all the time things that I just know aren't going to be ultimately a very interesting photograph, even though I am interested to look at this thing, I don't want another picture of it to exist in the universe. So, I mean, I, I, I self-censor stuff myself. I feel like all the time, there's a lot of stuff with people that I don't shoot that would make great photos. But to me, I don't want my camera to invade that moment. 
And I think that's a cons this is not 1962. I mean, I think that's a consideration is that the world is in a different place and there shouldn't always be a camera photographing everything that people do without their knowledge. I, I'm fine with that. I'm fine at letting a lot of things go because I don't think the world needs another photo of it. Now, sometimes I want another photo of it for me and I'll do it for me. And that that's probably a different thing. And I probably won't ever, you know, put that picture out into the world. But I, I don't, there are, I think there's a school of, of thought that will say to never, ever self-censor anything, um, just shoot it and, you know, uh, put it, you know, do it because it's important because you want to do it and see where it goes. But I, I got to say, I kind of don't really believe that anymore. <laughs> I probably did it at one point in time, um, but there are plenty of things I think are better off left un, unshot. Um, and maybe you have to be looking at, uh, maybe it's other things that you are not seeing uh, that you need to shoot. So I think it, it, there's two ways to think about it from my thing. And one is the self-censorship of the social media world. Do I want to put this shot out here because of what the reaction might be? And the other is the self-censorship of does this make me a better photographer or not? You know, um, And I think that... I'm not saying one of those types of self-censorship is better than the other, but they, I understand why both of them exist. And they're not necessarily a bad gut instinct for any photographer to have in some situations, if that makes any sense. But, but could that be a, a film versus digital thing? Uh, to some degree, I think it inherently is. Because, yeah, if it's digital, who cares? I mean, just what are you wasting? Uh, one, one more of the... 28,000, you know, frames your memory card can hold or is it is it one more piece of film out of 12 exposure thir or 36 exposures that you're wasting, you know? So I think there is that I think you self-censor a lot more when you shoot film because it's limited resources, you know? Um but it's not the only reason. I mean, I I think it it goes beyond that, but I do think that is definitely a consideration, yeah. So I, I, I think I self-censor too much, especially when I'm using film, to the mm. point where I'll go out and just not take the photograph because I'll be there thinking, would I would, you know, would I even take it on digital? I'll be might ask myself the question. And, yeah. and if I haven't got the digital camera with me, then I, I really don't know if that would be true or not. Yeah. Well, the, How much I, film do you have in your fridge? <laughs> I've got so much <laughs> film in the fridge. Yeah, you should you should just go and shoot it. Uh, get over that censorship. <laughs> yeah, well, I yeah. Mean, and well, that's something I touched upon a good good while back when I first put some film into a film camera for the first time in thirty years or what or what whatever it was um, a couple of years ago with a an OM one, and I I put I bought a new roll of film I put it in the camera, and it then sat there for six months. I didn't dare <laughs> use it. You know, I, I didn't feel worthy. Well, you probably weren't. No, <laughs> been honest with yourself. <laughs> no, but I think Perry's right. I, I, and I think uh, Simon, this is not a new thing for for you. And you've we, we've you've mentioned this many many times over the I don't know how many years we've been going at this stuff. But I know that you do that. You you say you know I just don't feel I don't I, this pressure to do. And I I think there that for some people it really they do need to self censor less. And Simon. You're probably one of them. So, Simon, you should shoot everything. I agree with Perry. Go on, shoot. <laughs> and, and there is, you know, Johnny's right. There's a difference because with digital, 
you can shoot a lot more. I shoot lots of random crap when I have a digital camera. Yeah, with me. you do. Um, because <laughs> it's, it's fun, right? It's yeah, like because yeah. I'm going right. to run out of film if I shoot 30 pictures of my cat falling asleep, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but there are also shots that I don't share just because it's not the kind of photography that I'm that interested in sharing. Like I shoot a lot of portraits of my friends and family and stuff like that, and and I share it with them, and they love the photos. And I think those are the kinds of photos that also show the character of different classic lenses to a much more noticeable degree uh, than a lot of the lenses I would use to like shoot street. Yeah. Um, except the Zeiss Biogon, that's awesome. But yeah, so like I, I, <laughs> I don't share those pictures, but it, they're there. Um, it's not so much a self censorship as like the kind of photography that I'm interested in, like sharing with the world tells a different kind of story than like a picture of my friend with his daughter, like having fun, which to yeah. them is a super, super cool photo. But like, well, I don't, for me, I'm like, what's the point of posting that on Facebook? Cause a, I don't know if my friend wants me to, um, I could ask permission, but B it's, it's for their consumption. So someone else is going to have a totally different emotional resonance with that, uh, than the person who's like actually seeing their daughter in a picture. Right. The only thing I think we should censor is the use of the word Boca. I think from and and Mike uh, Mike Novak, who is a new member of the Classic Lenses Podcast Facebook group, of which you could be a new member too if you join us. Um, he he used the term the other day, oofta, o o f dash t a, in place of that other b word. So from now on, I think oofta should be the new boca. Uh, no, as the uh, as the Asian <laughs> correspondent, I'm totally cool with Japanese words being. On the podcast, but like Simon, if you're gonna if you're gonna talk about that um, 58 2.4 lens, uh, please pronounce it properly. It's it's Asahi. <laughs> when when I started pronouncing it, I actually changed my pronunciation halfway through the word as well. So uh, yeah, always what I was going to do. Uh, no, Perry, just to just to just to um, clarify, I am not. It's not an anti like Japanese word thing. It's that it's become like a. The word itself is just shorthand for a cliche type of photography, and I and I think um, I think that was kind of Mike's. Well, I don't know what Mike's intentions were. We'll have to talk. We'll get Mike on to talk about ufta. I just think ufta is a much better word for. I think no, Boca has been. I think Boca has been just run into the ground to the point where Apple is making you know oh. commercials use using the word Boca as many times as they can in the commercial. So to me, that Boca's dead. Yeah, hashtag Boca's dead. Hashtag fuck Boca. Hashtag Ufta. Uh, and hashtag no K. N O K E H. That's my that's my contribution. Okay. I think everyone who saw all of us who saw that Apple ad just cringed so hard. Uh, you know, don't turn it into a verb for the love of all things holy. Exactly. Uh, oh, no. But but while we're on the film uh, versus digital kind of conversation, um, can, can we talk a little bit about the workflow? Because, you know, when I was going to the protest yesterday, it, it never even crossed my mind to bring a digital camera, even though it probably would make more sense. And, and there are lots of different reasons behind that for like the aesthetic, enjoying the process, um, the sort of meaning that it carries for me to like just go through and develop all of my negatives. But one of the main reasons I prefer to shoot film Number one, I have a lot more fun with it. 
But number two, the worst part about shooting film is scanning. Um, I, yeah. I, I hate scanning with a burning passion. But then with digital, it's, you know, you're sticking the memory card in your computer and then downloading like hundreds of pictures. And that process of like going through and curating hundreds of digital photos, oh. uh, I, I, I hate doing that. And I know, I know that logically I could be more disciplined and take only 36 shots every time I go out with a digital camera. But in practice, obviously, that's never what happens. Right. So yeah. in a given day, when I if I shoot like four rolls of film, that's still totally manageable from a scanning and curating point of view. But if I shoot like 500 digital photos and download them, which is what I do when I carry a digital camera, then when I, I'm just I'm just so full of regret when I download them on my computer because I don't really like deleting photos. <laughs> Oh man, that's so true. I can really, I, you know what I gotta say, Perry? It's so nice to have someone on this podcast that is even more anti-digital than I am. Because then again, it takes the heat off of me. So I really appreciate that, Perry. And you're you're younger, and you you can handle it better than I can. So it's a really great thing that you're here. Um, but I'm, I'm not anti-digital. I, I have like <laughs> six digital cameras, and I I like them. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm just pro film and like right, right, right. I've yeah. been shooting film for so long that uh, like I've been shooting the two side by side for so long that I've become more <laughs> and more film oriented. Yeah, but like you know, like the reason I, I use classic lenses is, is because I shoot film right. and not the other way around. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's more fun. It's more the way that I shoot. It works really well because I have to trust myself to time the moment. And I get a lot more satisfaction out of seeing a scene that I want to capture in a certain way, like taking my time to think about it. And like one of the things about one of the beautiful things about living in a city is when you see something and you miss the shot, it's going to happen again. Right. right? Like spaces right. are designed for people to interact with them in certain ways. And so once I kind of un understood that that feeling of, oh, man, I missed that shot. I should have had a digital camera so I could have sprayed and prayed and got it. Once I kind of understood that, no, no, if I wait here for another half an hour, it will happen again in a city this dance. Totally, totally. And oh, my God. Yeah. That film gives you to stand there and wait to work the scene. I just find super satisfying because like with a mechanical film camera, like the moment you press the shutter, you know, you've got your shot and, and you can see with a rangefinder, it doesn't black out. Right. You mm -hmm. see the moment you've captured when you hear that sound and it's like, yes, I got it. Yeah. Yeah, there's places I've gone in Chicago that I've gone back to months later sometimes to take a photo. Because, like, okay, the shadows don't look right this time of year because there's leaves on the trees. I'm going to wait till November, and the light will be different, yeah. and there'll be better totally. shadows, and I'll shoot it then. <laughs> you know, so it's, like, it's really interesting how shooting in a environment that you kind of experience all the time you you start to learn things like that like what's the best time to shoot this particular thing in this place so but yeah. I, yeah but i have you know i have very much the same a lot of the same reasons that i prefer film is my input source and that's really how i think of it because it's you know my output is digital so i could mm. i could just as easily get to the same output point using a digital camera, right? Because I don't really make prints anymore. I spent too many, you know, full 12-hour days in dark rooms in earlier times of my life to really want to spend much time over a vat of chemicals all day long. I just don't really have that much interest in it anymore. So I don't make a lot, I don't make chemical prints really 
much anymore. Um, but I, I still prefer, you know, film capture as my input source because a lot of it is because what you've just said, Perry, about it's a different um, process to making an image if you start with it as a film image versus a digital image. Um, and I just like the look of it. I, there's a different look to it. And to me, you know, the, the output may be the same in the end, but the input makes the image look very different. Um, you know, I've, I, to me, you know, I shoot mainly in black and white. And I, I think digital by nature has too much shadow detail and it, it's too sharp. So there's too much, everything is sharp and there's all sorts of unnecessary detail in the shadows. And that's not what I like about black and white photography. So, yeah. you know, it's like, I, it just isn't, it's just not the right tool. It would be like using a shovel instead of a hammer when I need a hammer. And it's not to say that, Digital is a totally, I, I am so fine with people making digital images. It's just for me, it's not the right tool. If it works for other people, it's great for them. I have no problem with that, you know? It's yeah, just and, for me, it's not, a, it's not the right tool. Two yeah. quick points on that. I think on the look, um, I remember an article a while back that a friend used to test me where like some dude took a bunch of pictures of the same scene with Tri-X and like a yeah. Tri-X simulator yeah. And his point was like they look the same, and I went through and I I got it. I got every single comparison yeah. correct. Yeah. Um, it's like, what are you talking about? They're totally different. But secondly, I think the process is important. Like post processing aside, um, we spend so much of this our, like our lives these days in the digital world, looking at right. screens, right? And when mm -hmm. I'm shooting digital, like you know, we all chimp, right? And it's it's not just a case of like losing the shot, but for me, I have a routine when I shoot street where I show up at the place I want to shoot, I take out my headphones, and then before I even take my uh, camera out, I have to walk around and kind of feel like I've become sort of engaged and part of the street. And if the more that I look at a screen, the less engaged I am with the process of shooting. Um, and so I love the fact that with film, there's, there isn't even the temptation of chimping. Um, yeah. And you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll just wait and focus on the shooting. Yep. I, th totally. I think I, I think I need to weigh in in defense of digital now <laughs> um and i'm just just going back to that experience i had with those those, those flowers which obviously i, I used uh, a digital camera and i was thinking to myself i could i even taken that shot with uh, with a with a film camera uh, on a bright day with a f2 lens um <clears throat> and in particular the kind of I, my color film of choice is slide film uh, when when I can get hold of it, uh, it's a it's a sensible price, and that that means that I've got very little you know, to go into film terms. We talk about latitude, whereas we talk about dynamic range with uh, with digital, and so effectively the lat well the latitude or dynamic range of uh, slide film is it's it's not much. You you can you can make your shadows uh, black or you can burn your highlights out very easily. And if you've got a scene that's got um, I don't know, eight, eight, nine, ten stops of light difference between the darkest area and the brightest area, then you're going to have to sacrifice something uh, with slide film. Whereas with digital, you can probably, if you expose it in the right way, you can probably carry detail from the shadows all the way through to highlights, or you can also uh, um, bracket as well. Um, but the, the thing is that I never would have actually picked up a 
film camera to have gone to that garden knowing the kind of photography I was I was likely to do and that's not to say that you can't do flower photography or bokeh photography with film because you absolutely can and I've 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 done it but you've if you're doing it with slide film you've got to do it under very very specific yeah. conditions yeah. and yes. so I knew that really the only option for me on that day was to take I mean I, yeah I'm just just thinking about what what film camera could I have actually used um, that might have coped with a shutter speed issue and I was thinking well I've got a an EOS kind of EOS 1N um, so assuming I could make that so that the adapter doesn't uh, cause a problem with the the mirror uh, not not moving because I've had that problem before where you, you just doesn't take the photograph and I think there's a way you can tweak the contacts so it uh, so it works better but that would have been probably the only camera that I owned that was capable of taking that photograph and but I never knew exactly what I was going to walk into so in reality it just never would have happened so I would always just go out with the digital camera in that case but that's a limitation that limitation is more to do with slide film right because yeah. like with negative film your latitude is in the highlights um whereas with digital it's the other way around so if you blow out your highlights in digital they're gone <laughs> Uh, but if you underexpose digital, you can push them like to a ridiculous degree and it still looks good, which is why digital is so good for low light. But then with film, if you're shooting negative film, you can overexpose portrait by like six stops and it still, look, still looks good. Yeah, right? and, that, and, that, uh, and that's true. But the, 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 there's a couple of things there that I'm one I like the reason why I like slide film is because I like the look of slide film now portrait is probably yeah. about as good as you get with with negative film and I've never actually shot portrait because it's expensive stuff um but that would probably be that would that would make sense and it would give me you know a, a, a good shot but I think when I'm actually taking if I am going to take something like a flower photograph I want the shot to be as clean as possible and I actually think for those kind of shots I don't know what, what percentage of the time it's going to be a very, very high percentage, but I think I actually prefer a digital image of a, of a, of a flower bokeh shot, if you like, than I would do um, most film shots. I've done some on, on slide film and, and I've made it work and I've made it work well. And I've been really, really happy with it. Um, but the circumstances have just got to be so right. Um, yeah. And I just don't think that using a color negative film, I'd get the look that I'm actually trying to achieve. I think you're right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Johnny. I was just gonna say I agree. I agree with you, Simon, because especially color print film shooting wide open, you just get mush, and it's beautiful mush. It's beautiful grainy mush, but it's mush, and it's you, you just you. It's not the same effect. You know what I mean? Because digital is just so much sharper for that sort of thing. You have a lot more apparent depth of field. Um, I think on film you end up with basically you basically end up with a shot where it looks like nothing's in focus because even what is in focus is so soft and mushy that you know between the film grain and you know between how well you were actually to hit able to hit focus because you're using a you know whatever view, viewfinder you're using is going to be less accurate anyway than what you could do on a, a digital camera a mirrorless camera I mean I I think you just end up with a completely different look you know in particular that's you know you put a, a side by side of something you know a flower bokeh wide open shot on film versus digital they're going to look so much different and i can understand why you would in that case want that particular look from a digital image you know and i'm just sitting here with my jaw on the ground that you've never shot portra 
you got to try Portrait Man. It's so good. It's not uh, any cheaper than slide film, that's for sure. Or yeah, exactly. the, yeah. It, like, put, yeah, it, it, it is. The reason why I've been shooting um, slide film, apart from the fact that I used to shoot uh, ectochrome back in the day and a bit of Kodachrome, uh, the reason I've been doing it relatively recently is just simply because I've just picked up an absolute load of uh, film um, about a year ago and uh, I, I had uh, quite a bit of slide film actually w w within it. So, But that will be my choice of film that I would have. But portrait, I've, the pictures I've seen with portrait in particular portraits strangely enough um, especially yep. portrait 800 i'm blown away by it i think it yeah. looks absolutely brilliant and and yep. to the point where i i would look at a shot taken with portrait uh, with whether it be with a medium format camera or, or, or whatever um and i'll be there thinking yeah that is the medium that is the look that yeah. i would like to achieve yeah. yes exactly i mean it depends on the film you're choosing right but, um, you know, like, Ektar is good for certain kinds of color, but Portra 800 has that vintage look uh, yeah. that's just fantastic. Portra 400 is just, I can't get that look on digital. And to me, it is my favorite uh, color negative film for shooting people. Um, and there are so many different, like, cool different looks that you get with film. Um, but just going back really quickly to the, the latitude and dynamic range point, um, like, I recently shot my first role of Adox Silvermax, right? Oh, um, yeah. And, you know, you've got, you got digital with its dynamic range in the shadows, film with its latitude and the highlights. This stuff is insane. Because um, <laughs> when I scanned it, normally, you know, your histogram is like sort of a hill shape that is pushed one way or another, depending on what the tones are like in your image. Mm -hmm. and, and when I scanned these images, it was literally two mountains, like one hill for the actual <laughs> normal photo, and then another hill for the sky. Yeah. And I was like, what is this? Like, you, it, it's retained all the details in the highlights. And I just sat there with my jaw open going like, I've never seen a black and white film with this, not just this degree of latitude, but like this kind of latitude. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think my digital cameras can do that because you blow out your sky. If you try to bring it down, like it looks like crap, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. Although funny story about a uh, quick story about flower photography uh, and film, because I think this is something that Simon, you would have done much better than I did. Because there was one time when I was out shooting uh, street photography, and I had like uh, I think uh, one of my rangefinders with a Zeiss lens, some black and white film, and I was walking through this park to cut across to another area, and there was this gorgeous like uh, set of flowers. Um, and the way that the light was reflecting off their leaves, just, it, it sang to me. I was like, this is going to look so good in black and white. Cause you know, Johnny likes high contrast stuff, but I like grays and like, t and like subtle tonality in grays. Mm -hmm. So I went up and I went to take this picture of this flower against, uh, the leaves in the background. I didn't have any color filters with me. So I was just like, whatever. I took the picture. I went home and I developed the shot and the leaves look fantastic. You can't see the flower. Because it's just gray. It's like the same tone as the rest of the leaves. Like, ah, well, that's what I get for not having like a green filter or something. I th I but like my experience with flower photos, you know, um, I, I, sh I wouldn't have taken the photo if I had realized that that's, that would have happened. And I was just an idiot at that I time. I think black, black and white photos of flowers is something that is it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. Because uh, it's, you know, you, you, your, your tones can, can yeah, well, can stand out in colour, can just go completely flat, of course, as you just, just described there. 
Um, I think I've seen some great shots of uh, done, done with black and white. Usually, like still life, uh, tend to be. Um, but I think you've you've just got to capture um, very strong details. I think with with black and white to actually make that a, a flower shot work. I think. And it's a lot easier when the flower is actually white. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You re you really need to use uh, filters yeah. very very carefully with uh, that kind of photography. I mean, in like I, I think that look no further than Ansel Adams if you want to see because he did a lot of stuff like that. Actually, he did a lot of photography that was like closer up. I mean, people know him for his landscapes, but he did an awful lot of black and white photography that was like flowers and ferns and plants and this and that and it was always so carefully thought about what filter he was going to use to get the right sort of contrast between tones to make the subject matter really pop out. So you really have to, you really have to be a technician when you're doing that sort of thing with, in terms of filtration, because well, you can't, see, you can't see with your eye. It's knowing what the film's going to do, you know? Yeah. yeah. That is, is, is a point now. And because you, you, you can, I'm not. I'm not using color filters with uh, black and white at the moment, and part of me says you absolutely should. But the other part of me says, well, I scan. I don't print. Uh, that might change in the future, but at the moment, I don't. I don't print, and so I'm, I, I'll scan them. I'll put them into Lightroom. I might even put them through Silver Effects or something, something like that. And I feel I've got a huge amount of um, uh, scope to change where the blacks are and the mid-tones and the shadows and all, all, all and deal, dealing with the highlights and have as much contrast or take contast out and so on. Am I, am I missing out yeah, with that I, kind of workflow? Well, here's the thing. Like, I mean, if you're doing black and white, if you, if there's a lot of sky in the image, you, you cannot sort of digitally pull your sliders and knobs far enough to make it look like you had a red filter on the on the yeah. lens when you shot the photo. I mean, a red filter will make this guy literally look black pretty much, you know? And it, it's a totally different look that you really can't fake. I mean, you can, but it's going to look like you slid everything to get that sky to look that way. Yeah. So either I generally have a yellow filter on all the time, but like in the summer when there's a lot of light and it's really bright, I usually switch to a red filter because the – you just get such dramatic contrast when you've got an area of sky in the photo. Um, and you can, you know, you, it gets so bright that you can lose your three stops or whatever, and you still have enough light to freeze action. So, I mean, it really, I think it really makes a huge difference um, to start with filters in front of the lens when you take the shot versus doing it in post, you know? And the other big difference it makes is, um, it's going to change the relative tonality right, of right. different colors, right? So, yeah. you know, if you have a person whose skin is a similar level of, like, tone or brightness to the background, um, a filter can make their skin, like, stand out up against the background. And that's something that, you know, if you're going to do it in post, uh, in digital afterwards, you're going to have to spend time, like, dodging and burning and masking um, to make that yeah. happen. You're not going to yeah. be able to, as Johnny said, just move the sliders a little bit. I mean, for me, I, I tend to, sometimes I use a yellow filter when I specifically know um, that there's a certain contrast look that I'm going to get. But a lot of the times I'm just lazy. And so what I do is I pay more attention to composition when I'm shooting. Mm. Um, and I'll, I'll be really careful about what the background of my subject is and just like yeah. constantly move around until I know there's enough contrast. Um, but it using a yellow filter, 
software makes makes it easier, definitely. Yeah. The the other thing that I I do, and I know quite a few other people uh, do, and I also know that quite a few people will be horrified uh, to hear me say this. Is uh, but I I often shoot uh, color negative film with a specific intention of uh, turning it into monochrome. That's okay. So I'm not being shouted at, well, not least by no. you guys. <laughs> but but the thing is, the beauty of that is what you were saying about you know what you can do with a red filter and stuff like that. Um, you know, you can you you turn it to black and white. But you still have access to those colours. So then you you can uh, do your blue slider and to, and, and make your uh, was it the red slider? Probably the blue slider and, and make the um, the sky black if you wish to do that. And and you've got access to all all of those those features that way. But I, I absolutely get the point. You, you're going to lose out if you're shooting black and white without filters, uh, which is just going to make your life a lot harder if, you, if there's a certain kind of look you're trying to achieve in well, the first place. Yeah, it just depends on the look you want. I mean, I, I'm a heathen, and I only really develop everything in Rodinal because I like everything to be really to have a lot of edge sharpness. I like a lot of really, really strong contrast. I like my, you know, I like my whites to be really poppy and my blacks to be really dark. And I, so I always have a, at least a yellow number one on the, on the lens because I just, I know from the starting point, the combination of, you know, filter film and developer, I get a certain look and I, you know, it's just like things don't even look right to me if I don't have a yellow filter on by default. Um, so it's, it's just, it's about the look you want. I mean, in other cases, like a blue filter would help to actually extend the, the gray range. So there's a lot you can do by just understanding how the colors, you know, the, the spectrum of light and the sensitivity of the film work, work together to sort of change the relationship of tones. You don't actually, that's the thing is it doesn't actually change the contrast of the image. It changes the relationships of the tones, which is really what Perry just said. Um, so it's just, it's, that's the other thing, I guess, just to kind of continue why I, I prefer film to digital is that when I'm making images with film, I'm thinking about the end result way more at the beginning of the shot than I am with digital because I'm thinking about everything from which filter am I going to use, right? And how much contrast is that going to give me? And what am I looking for out of the shot? And I'm actually, before I even shoot the shot, I'm thinking of how I'm going to go into the shot to shoot it, if that makes sense. Yeah, you can see the difference too. I mean, I can tell from your shots, Johnny, that you're probably using a yellow filter and, and that yeah. reflects the fact that you like really high contrast stuff yeah. and you know one of the reasons i don't use a filter very much is if you look at my film photos they look really different to yours because yeah yeah, yeah. i don't have anywhere near as much contrast in my shots right 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 and, and totally. i've already used them to the point where the contrast looks borderline excessive to me because i know like high contrast pics look cooler um on on a lot of digital mediums mm -hmm. uh, but yeah for my own personal taste like that's where i take them yeah. And that, and that's what I mean. It's I, I and I that's one of the things I really like about, you know, film as a starting point is that you can really shape that final look so much. I mean, you and me, Perry, could shoot the same film and get two completely different looks out of it. Right. Because we 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 start at, at a different starting point and we probably develop differently and use different chemical. I mean, it's amazing to me that you can do that. There's so there it's like, there's so much variability there without having to resort to spending a lot of time in post-production 
on a computer, which, you know, again, I, I've done so much of that both commercially for pay and just on my own. It's like, I just don't want that to be my experience of photography. Most of the time when I'm doing stuff for myself is spending loads and loads of time post-processing. So I just try not to go there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's uh, move on and, uh, and we can actually do something quite, quite new for this show. Uh, and that there's, there's a piece of news that's uh that's come out today um and that's regarding um fuji uh in particular the fuji of uh, a company that uh have been having some quite negative press uh, for quite some time in the uh, in the film community for uh, ceasing production of uh, various um films and uh, one of the films that was taken out of production uh, not that long ago, uh, which was missed by a lot of people, is their 100 uh, ISO Acros, or Acros, no, let's call it Acros. Um, and the news being that uh, today, uh, not only are they bringing Acros back, they're actually bringing Acros 2 um, to the yeah. market. So it, it appears that Fuji have not been doing what people have thinking they've been doing by sort of turning their back on film as quickly as they possibly can do. Um, they've produced a new emulsion, or at least that's what they're saying. It's a, it's a new emulsion. Um, so um, that's, that's, that's made me very, very happy was across is a, is a very interesting film. It's quite a niche film in some respects, but I like, um, I like the idea of across. I think I've actually used a, a, a role of it on 35 mil and I, I really particularly like the grain structure with it uh, because I'm mm -hmm. not a fan of grain unless I actually really want grain. Um, generally speaking, I'm, I'm not a particular fan of it. And I found that that was a, it was a really fine grained um, film and uh, it, it, it coped with, uh, it had plenty of latitude in it as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm particularly uh, pleased about that. Although there are some people out there that aren't, aren't <laughs> very pleased about it. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm not entirely sure. We won't name like names that. or anything like that. Uh, you know, there's negatives and positives to any time a new film is developed, is, is introduced. And you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And, uh, um, funnily enough, um, it's the, uh, the one, one of the, uh, co-hosts of the, um, negative positives film photography podcast from Louisville, <laughs> Kentucky. Um, and we won't say who he is. Um, uh, Mike and uh, he's, he's been coming out with some quite Fujist statements um, uh, today. Um, let's see, I, I think Mike thinks it's uh, some kind of conspiracy against Kodak. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't share that point of view, but who knows? Time, time, time will tell. Uh, but I've, I've, I've been quite uh, vocal in, the, not necessarily on the podcast, but uh, vocal against. Uh, Fuji for some time, uh, mainly for taking taking our toys away. Um, but I'm I'm really really pleased that they've come back. And the other thing to be in support of Fuji is the fact that for a long time Fuji was pretty much it. I mean, yes, you had Ilford producing some black and white film, or plenty of black and white film. But in terms of color, if you if you wanted to shoot color slide film in particular, um, yeah. Fuji was pretty much the was it the only game in town? I know there was Agfa Preciser, um, but. You know, if if you wanted to shoot across medium format, but that uh, was shoot film I, and so I'm on. I'm pretty that's sure that was Fuji also. <laughs> right. Well, well, that, that, that. On it. So, yeah, because the old, old school Agfa uh, slide films, you know, were made by Agfa. 
um, in Belgium. But I, I think the newer stuff that we've had, you know, certainly post bankruptcy of Agfa and that transition and all that. Uh, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but you know what I'm saying. Um, I'm pretty sure that was just repackaged Fuji anyway. So, so yeah, I mean that 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 that's certainly true. Um, and I understand why people get up, upset with Fuji, but I mean none of this is. I am always it always is interesting to me because everything Fuji does. It's 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 all in their annual reports. This stuff is not secret. I mean, they've been talking about eliminating film stocks since at least 2010. So none of it is really news when it happens. Um, it's not a conspiracy. They have a very logical plan, business wise, why they do what they do, and they put that out there. So it, you know, none of it is really all that surprising to me. And even the whole Acros you know, two thing is not super surprising. I don't think because number one, Acros really has never completely gone away. I know I've even been able to get it here, you know, in the U S if I really want to, um, I got it on the shelf. We have it on the shelf now at, at central. So it's not, it hasn't ever really completely disappeared. And number two, I, I mean, a lot of their, the way their business works, it's easier for them to protect certain patents, copyrights, trade secrets, et cetera, if they're still developing film because they use those same technologies in other parts of their, of their business and in other products. So if for no other reason than film helps them to you know, continue R&D efforts for their other core businesses, it makes sense for them to keep you know, the, certainly the technology around to make film um, and certainly – probably to, just to make film itself you know there is a large enough consumer base out there to support it now that's not true for all of their films which is why they killed peel apart um because why would you have a competing product that goes into cameras you don't even sell and aren't even made anymore when you're also making instax so to me it's very logical why they don't make type 100 film anymore and i'm actually fine with that um but it also makes sense to me that they're still going to continue to make black and white film and i think they'll continue to make you know limited selections of slide film available as well for the foreseeable future um but but i mean we'll see where that goes but i don't it's just i don't know i don't think anything fuji does is that surprising because they talk about it as part of their business model you know yeah i think the surprising thing about this announcement is just it bucks that trend of all the films they've been discontinuing um which you know the anger is or the disappointment in fuji i think is understandable from the community but the, the what Johnny says makes a lot of sense because you know you have these smaller manufacturers who are dedicated to producing film, and so you know we love them and uh, want to support them. And, but when it's a company like Fuji where they're making everything from you know digital cameras, obviously, to like just an entire suite of like imaging products, um, film is such a small part of their business that you know you can imagine that it's not even a very high priority. So for them to right. come out and announce uh like the revival of acros is just kind of cool and i'm just keen to see if it performs the same way because acros is one of those films that i like it you know it's it's pretty contrasty um so i i only shoot it when i want that particular kind of look but it's a really nice looking black and white uh film and i think like even on the digital side when they tried to replicate it with their acros simulation uh yep. in the cameras you can tell like people love that look you know it's yep. it's <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, the other there's another thing that makes Acros uh, different. I don't know if this applies to ev every other um, film of its type, but it uh, it doesn't suffer for it. It has very little uh, reciprocation. Recipro yeah, yeah, recipro reciprocity. Reciprocity. That's it. Yeah. Um, so, and that's that's really important or useful. I should way better way of putting it. Uh, it's it's really useful for those people uh, taking long exposures uh, with um, yeah. with 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 film um, because uh, reciproc reciprocity is is something where uh, if you if a digital camera says that your your shutter speed is going to be at I don't know uh, ten seconds. Um, I'm going to pull this off the top of my head. Then, if it's with a, a normal film, then it's probably closer to thirty seconds um, yeah. because of just the way that uh, the film absorbs the light or the chemicals on the film uh, are, are, are dealt with. Um, whereas Acros doesn't have that issue, so uh, it's a, it's a lot easier to meter for. Um, so that that makes it very popular, in particular the uh, people like uh, I don't, actually I'm not sure if Andrew Barcham of uh, the Lensless Podcast and the LFPP. Um, who I, I do with him. Um, I don't know if he's an Acros um, fan or not, but I know that there are plenty of lens, uh, lensless podcast users um, that are actually Neil Piper, the certain uh, whitewash podcast was uh, jumping, doing a jig earlier on today um, as a result of it. So yeah, there's a lot of people really, really happy to see that very particular film come back. Yeah. I think it's um, worth just quickly explaining to listeners who, who don't aren't aware of this, what reciprocity means a little more clearly. Because um, basically what Simon said makes sense. Because, because like, I didn't give a good enough expl explanation. <laughs> that, that's what I'm saying, yeah, basically. Um, so, so what reciprocity is for our listeners is uh, with film, with digital, if you want to double your exposure, you just double the, the shutter speed. You have the shutter speed, right? You double the time. And with film, this is the case for most shooting. But once you get to long exposure times, uh, that's no longer the case. And so if you want to double the exposure, sometimes you have to like quadruple or like multiply your shutter speed by way more than double the length. Um, and it's harder and harder to come by like data charts that show you exactly how long to do this. So I, I didn't actually know Acros had very little reciprocity failure. So I was trying to shoot a couple of months ago long exposures at night at a harbor with uh, RPX 100. And... Uh, it's a film by Roly, and there's like no data online about its reciprocity. So I was just guessing, and the pictures didn't turn out so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, I think um, as we're nearing the end of the podcast here, we probably want to talk a bit about the new Classic Lenses Podcast Facebook group. Um, and we've had a number of new members trickling over. We're still waiting for, I think, a lot of people to to know that the group is there. Uh, but it, it is out there. So the the Facebook group for Classic Lenses podcast will be kind of the place for discussion about each week's episode. Um, but <laughs> we've had um, Simon in his wisdom uh, put a, a question for uh, new members who want to join the group. Um, he put a question up there to make sure that, you know, you, you want to make sure you don't get a bunch of spam followers, et cetera. That it was that it's really the audience that that's wanting to join. So um, we're going to read some of the answers to this question. Um, so here's the question, and then I'll read I'll read some of the answers to it. So Simon's uh, question to prospective new members who want to join the the Facebook group is: Welcome to the CLP. We want to make sure this is the right place for you. So please answer the request. An essay is not required. State 
a fact or falsehood about the Classic Lenses podcast. So, um, <laughs> so Jason, uh, Jason Elias said his answer is fact. Simon has owned every Tessar ever made. <laughs> Nigel Cliff's answer, fact. Uh, Johnny, Johnny Sisson is not ageist, uh, <laughs> which may or may not be true. Um, we have uh, Rollin Banderob said uh, they know everything about classic autofocus lenses, but only in April. <laughs> Matthew Joseph Loimer says it's a podcast about brand new autofocus lenses. Absolutely true. Uh, <laughs> we have uh, Eric Kosluis said Johnny is originally from Alabama. Secret knowledge, of course. Um, and I, I think I corrected him that that that's actually called Alabama Stan. Uh, let's see. Ben Reynolds says Johnny loves Sony full frame cameras as much as Simon buys the right speed graphic. Uh, Timothy Phillips says the podcast is hosted by Simon Forster, Johnny Sisson, and now Perry G and blue is a perfectly good color for a Bessa. We all know that is true. I had a dream about my blue Bessa last night. Um, let's see this one. Ooh, this is very small. Let's see if I can read this fat. Uh, this is, uh, Oh, Robbie Jameson says, Fact one, the Classic Lenses podcast makes my Monday bearable. Fact two, Simon wants all of the Tessars in the world to be at the bottom of the ocean where they belong. Fact number three, panorama masks on cameras are an accept acceptable photographic tool. Smiley face, smiley face emojis. Uh, Matthew Ashbrook says, Johnny S. is from Chicago and loves his blue Bessa. Adrian Doyle says Johnny discusses Petri. Simon forgets to edit out the blooper. Pet Perry sneaks in all his lenses on the island and be like Carl. Uh, Gilbrand Vicente says you guys hate zoom lenses. <laughs> uh, and I think our, one of our newest members uh, just having joined today is, is Mike Novak. And I think he said of the podcast, you can wrap fish in it. <laughs> I think that the nature of that comment means something about it stinking. So, no, I, uh, <laughs> no, I think it's just com completely irreverent, isn't it? <laughs> okay, I was wondering if that was a reference to something I wasn't picking up, but surely it's it would a, be the other way around. We prevent bad smells from getting it's out. It's an Italian message that means Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, yeah, if you if you feel like joining uh, our dedicated uh, Facebook group, um, yes, you will you will be faced with a question, and there is the potential that uh, your answer to your question uh, may be posted and used against you in the in the group. So uh, think very carefully uh, about <laughs> joining and uh, how you join. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Luca Brazzi, I think um, Simon decided not to screen capture uh, Lucas Frazee's uh, question response that had, I don't know, some, some odd thing to do with yes, yes. teabagging. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. But, but Simon deemed it not. Uh, some, some answers may be funny, but they're not appropriate. So. Not appropriate for our younger and more sensitive viewers. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And don't, and don't, and please don't go to the <laughs> Large format photography podcast, and you swear words. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> right. Well, then I think that's. I think we should round things up now. Um, Perry, have you got any shout outs or anything like that? Anything you want to get off your chest before we disappear? 
Um, I guess a big shout out to everyone in Hong Kong who came out yesterday to the protest. Uh, one thing I didn't mention at the beginning was there were, you know, there were children and people of all ages and all backgrounds coming out uh, from all over the city. So uh, that was really cool to see. And also to everyone who came out and shot the protest. Um, this might give Jan- Johnny an aneurysm, but like when I was in the middle of the crowd shooting with the next pan- with my X-Pan, there was a dude behind me with a TX-1. Oh, I'm going weak in the knees. <laughs> <laughs> the guy, guy to my right was shooting with an M3 with goggled Sumicron. Uh, and then there was a, a girl a little bit to my left who also um, was rocking like a sweet rangefinder setup. So like wow. not just the protesters, the Hong Kong rangefinder shooters are out in force. Wow. This is why you need to come to Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> well, wow. I'm just, just thinking uh, – one day, perhaps we'll have enough coffee money to actually send uh, send us there. But uh, I think we might be waiting a very long time. But I think it's a good time to um, thank uh, those people uh, that uh, have donated to us this week. Uh, in particular, Nigel Cliff, James Thorpe, uh, Chris Holland, and Brian Woolworth. Um, and actually, on another on another note, uh, we have had a couple of emails uh, that have come through this week, uh, and we're not going to have time to do them this week and we won't have time to do them next week either because we have a super guest um i nearly went into super special guest which is what they always say on the sunday 16 podcast um <laughs> but we uh we have a returning uh guest from i think last time was on it was well over a year ago and that's per, per edmund uh, one of the admins in the photography with classic lenses uh, facebook group and he's going to be talking again about Minolta because we, you can't have pair on without him talking about Minolta, unfortunately. But he's going to be talking about adapting uh, old lenses, yes, Minolta's, um, to his uh, GFX, uh, medium format um, digital camera. So looking forward to that. But that's 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 going to be interesting to hear, hear his take on what it what what use it what it's like to use full frame lenses on that larger system so uh that's that's going to be interesting so uh it's going to be a couple of weeks before we actually get around to doing those emails um and uh johnny have you got anything else to say or uh stuff? i feel like i've got shout outs that i'm not thinking of at this moment right here but maybe i'll i'll try to make a note of those for next week for sure um well, uh, yeah, I'll just wait till next week. <laughs> okay. And, and I was just going to say, I, I didn't actually give uh, Perry the opportunity to, uh, about where people can find and keep up, keep up with yeah, right, right. that. So do you want to do that, Perry? Uh, yeah, sure. You can find me online uh, at my website, which is perryg.com, or on Instagram uh, and Flickr, which are also just perryg. Excellent. So back back over to you, uh, Johnny. Uh, you can find me on Instagram uh, at System Photography. I'm also at Central Camera Company in Chicago every day except for Monday and Sunday when we're closed. Um, you can you can meet me there at the camera counter or wherever else I happen to be wandering around inside Central Camera at that moment. Um, and I'd be great to talk to you there. Cool. And uh, have you, do you know a way how people can get in touch with us? Maybe. Um, yes, I do. You, you, you should, of course, you should, of course, follow us 
at uh, classiclensespodcast.com, which is the home of the website, the home of the, the web, the, the website home of the podcast, where you can get all the information about us hosting the show and other great information. You can get each podcast there. You get all the notes there. So definitely follow us there. You can also follow us on the new, new Facebook home of the Classic Lenses Podcast. We have our own group there. Um, so that's where we hope you will uh, come and have conversations with us with us about each episode. Um, you can also follow us kind of on Instagram. Um, you can follow Best Vintage Lens, who give a, a, a an amazing summary of each uh, episode that we do there um, at Best Vintage Lens. You can also tag your images with Best Vintage Lens. You can tag them with Classic Lenses podcast maybe i think no classic lenses something like that just hashtag it with best vintage lens just you know that's all that matters um and you can send us an email at classic lenses podcast at gmail.com or you can email us directly through the podcast and it will go to simon spam folder (laughs) exactly it's still going there i need to sort (laughs) that out um okay and uh i I just want to say thank you to kevin mcleod for our uh, our music that we use for our intro and outro which is uh uh, octo blues Uh, and you can find lots of music on incompetech.com uh quick shout out for the darkroom evening which is happening on tuesday night this week in tunstall in stoke on trent uh, where that's from seven o'clock if anybody wants to go along to that uh, just drop me a, a message either on facebook or uh, instagram or twitter um, and uh, i can give you some more details so that's not it's seven, seven o'clock so if you've got some film you want to be you want developed or you fancy having to go at printing uh, only black and white at the moment we can do color but it's it's going to be a bit tricky at the moment then uh, come along um, so if you do want to drop me a message about that uh, i'm on instagram as simon forster photographic and twitter is simon four um, so uh, yeah drop drop me a message on that one if you're interested and that's every second Tuesday of the month. Um, other things, you can find me, my website is Simon Forster Photographic, where I've got lots of FICAS adapters. Um, so, uh, which are really- Can you say that in Italian, Simon? No, we, we, don't, we don't say that in Italian. We've, we've, we've now learned. Um, <laughs> um, and um, what else? What else? Yes, I've got an eBay shop, and I've got uh, increasing number of lenses are on there at the moment. So, uh, and that's my eBay shop. Shop is under the name of It's Fuzzy. And you, again, you can, if you want to link to that, then you can find that uh, in our show notes. So that's pretty much it for this week. As I've already said, next week we've got Pear Edmund back, uh, and uh, so. I hope you enjoyed this week's show, and if you can, be like Carl. 